Well, if you will, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3. As we continue looking at the wonderful wisdom of God through his servant Peter to us, even though this letter was written to uh, a time and to a church diaspora or the spreading of the church throughout the Roman Empire due to persecution, it was done at a time where the church was struggling to survive. I mean, literally, I mean, uh, the, the church could have easily been wiped out by the Roman Empire at any time. But in God's wisdom and in his providence, he allowed persecution and suffering to actually cause the church to grow beyond what anyone ever imagined it could. And that was what was occurring in that first century of the church. The last few weeks, we've been looking at the first seven verses of chapter three and looking at how God is expecting his church to live in a particular way, especially in marriage and in the home, not out of rules and regulations, but out of a witness to the world around us. When the world looks to the church, they look for answers. And oftentimes the first answers they get are from what they see in us. No pressure, right? God has placed the church in a fallen world to redeem it through the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ is what redeems us from our sin. And then the world sees a testimony of that gospel in how we live, how we treat each other, how we work. Everything that we put our hands to is a witness to what Jesus Christ has done. Amen. And so now we come to verse 8 of chapter 3. And Peter continues to encourage the church to be this light, to be this witness in a fallen and broken world. If you will, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. We'll begin reading in verse 8 through 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for teaching us in your scripture the the blessing of pursuing that which is good. We do not seek goodness for our own benefit. We seek goodness because, dear God, you are good. And when we seek out goodness, Father, we are actually seeking your face. And in the midst of our suffering and persecution, in the midst of our struggles just to get by every single day for whatever reason that comes against us, whether it be finances, whether it be family, whether it be work, whatever, it just be struggles to survive every single day. Lord, it behooves the Christian to constantly seek the face of all that is good, and that is you. Lord, we do not do this faithfully. We all oftentimes allow the pressures of everyday living to overwhelm us and we fall into despair 
and our face turns away from the good, which is you, and we seek that which is evil, not out of desire, but because it overwhelms us. And I pray, God, this morning, as you speak to us in your word, that you would encourage our hearts to listen to what you have to say. That you would challenge us to seek out that which is pure and holy and righteous and good. And all that you are, Father, is what we desire. And I pray, God, that you would remind us of that. Because in the midst of our sorrow, we can forget. Use this time, Father, for your glory. Speak to our spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. My wife, Rhonda, and I were talking this week, and I can't remember exactly how the conversation came up. But over the years, I've learned that, you know what, when things get all hyper and stressful, I don't feel good. I've learned that when high-strung people get around me, I just don't like being around you. And that's why I think that's what I told Rhonda. Now, she's not the one who's high-strung. She was, but I think I made the comment that was about blood pressure is what it was. It was about Somebody's blood pressure, they can't control their blood pressure or something. They made the comment that I always have low blood pressure. I am blessed with that. Whenever I go to the doctor and they take my blood pressure, they have to take it three times because they can't believe that it's what it is. They have to verify. Even when I was in the Army when I was 18, they had, and I did the physical, they had to take my blood pressure several times because they couldn't realize that it was so low. And I made the comment to Rhonda in this, when they were talking about blood pressure, I said, well, I just stay away from high-strung people. I like to keep my blood pressure low. Whenever life gets stressful and, and, and difficult, do we run to that stress? Are we sucked into all of the, the hypertension and the, and, the, and the high strong emotions? Or do we try to isolate ourselves from it, try to, try to stay on a distance from it so that we, number one, we're at peace. But number two, because if we don't, what kind of a witness are we in the midst of that? I'm not always successful in that. Trust me, I've had my... Failures where I've lost my temper or gotten all high strung and lost whatever cool I had and it happens. But I tell you what, if, if I'm around people who are all high strung and, and they're just trying to suck me into it, I don't like that. I try to avoid it. I try to figure out some way not to become part of the conversation. I may try to step off to the side of the room or, or if I have to just get out of the way or whatever. Because whenever people get all high strung and they get all stressed, they want you to be part of their stress, don't they? I'm into my stress and I want everybody else to be stressed. I'm upset. I want everybody else to be upset. But how come, why is that the opposite that whenever life is going well and we're joyful, why do we not excitedly, excitedly bring people into that joy and that peace? We don't really want to share that for some reason. Or if we do, people look at us like we're weird. You ever been around those people who are always happy and joyful all the time? Sometimes they drive you just as nutty as the people who are stressed. But you know what? I think I'd rather be around somebody who's joyful and peaceful than around somebody that is all high strung. Peter here in chapter 3 is continuing in his teaching to the church about the beauty of what a harmonious Christian community looks like. You remember the context of 1 Peter. He's writing to the diaspora. He's writing to the dispersion of the church that is spread throughout the Roman Empire because of persecution. I always argue that if a Christian does not have strife in their life, if they do not have something coming against them, then I would argue that I wonder how close they are to the Lord. 
Because in my life, whenever it seems that God and I are the closest, is the time that the devil is always after me the hardest. And so Peter's writing these words of encouragement to the church. And now in verse 8, following a series of examples from chapter 2 and even into the beginning of chapter 3 of how Christians are to live with their pagan neighbors and even their pagan masters who are over them in ways that no one could understand or believe because the Christian life is so foreign to the way the world lives. Even to the point in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3, he's saying, likewise, even in your homes, even in your marriages, let the fallen world see something different. Let them see that you love one another. Let them see that you're harmonious in your marriage and harmonious in your family. And when they see that, that's a witness to the gospel. Now he begins in verse 8. Now he's talking to the church in general as a community. We are a new community of believers here. We are a new church called Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. As we come up on a one-year anniversary next month, we were a Bible study for a long time before that, remember? A year and a half or so before that. That's a year and three quarters, just about. And then we've started to meet in here as a church. As we gather as a community of believers, are we unified? Are we harmonious? Is there a beautiful song being sung just in our presence together as Jesus joins us? That's something I want to really ponder. As we, I mean, I, I can't believe it's been almost a year. <laughs> Seems like just last month. Right, but We have some things to really ponder and to think about and pray about. And I think if we look here at verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter concludes his argument here about how to live in harmony. He says, finally, so this is the end of his argument. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. In verse 8, when it says finally, I mean, literally, the, the word here is to sum up the end, right? And the word here that is used for finally or, or to, to sum up what it all means is actually kind of reaching the climax of the whole point of what Peter is trying to tell the church. This is the goal that we as Christians strive for. I use this example here of, of what this word finally means. In the Greek, it's the word telos. And it's a word that I use in the classes I teach at Volunteer State and Philosophy. This idea of telos is this concept of the end. And here's, here's how I try to explain this. If you're a student in school and you have just begun a new semester, what is your end goal by the end of the semester? And every one of them says to pass. No matter what you put your hand to, if you're in school, if you have a project at work, if you have something to do in the home, you usually have an end goal that you're striving to meet. And whatever that end goal is, that then motivates and inspires what you're doing right now to get there. Right? So if your goal is to, let's say, if you're a gardener, your goal is, I want to grow the best tomatoes I can grow this year. How does that affect how you get there. In other words, if your end goal at the end of the season is, is to have the best tomatoes, what do you do at the beginning of the season to ensure that happens? That's the concept here in verse 8. Finally, this is the goal that you are to strive for. And so if the goal here in verse 8 is to have unity of mind, to have sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind, if that is the goal that we are striving for, how does that affect 
right now? How do we get to that goal? What are, what are the pro, what is what is the process that we're going through right now to make sure that the goal that we strive for actually occurs? At work, at school, in the home, we know we have a project to obtain, we have a goal to reach. How do we get there? This is what Peter's talking about in verse 8. So, how do we get to what God wants? First of all, finally all of you, he's writing to all of us. And, and it's not just the world in general. Peter is writing to all of you, and it's the idea of God's elect that he speaks about in chapter 1. And God's elect is his church, those that he has redeemed, those that he has called to repentance, those that he has bought with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, all of you. So he's writing this entire letter to the church directly. So church had unity of mind. You could actually translate this idea of unity of mind as same thinking, if you really want to translate it literally. In other words, have same thinking. Isn't that great whenever two or more people actually are on the same page, they're thinking the same thing, and they're actually going for the same goal? Marriage is important for that. That's why verses 1 through 7, he goes into depth into how a marriage is supposed to be in the Christian life. You're supposed to be in harmony together, going for the same purpose, the same goal. When different members of the family want to go opposite directions they're not unified they're not harmonious i think about the military when i'll see Dwayne over here right whenever a military unit has a mission to accomplish what if everybody in the military unit wanted to do their own thing how successful will they be everybody's got to be in harmony of mind same thinking so as the church all of us peter is encouraging us to have unity of mind Not just for our benefit as the church, but primarily as a witness to the world. Honestly, think about when the fallen world looks at the church today, do they see unity of mind? Whenever people talk to me about what we're doing here at Sovereign Grace, they are amazed when I tell them, well, we're not a church split. We started as a Bible study in our house. And I think if you remember in the beginning days of, uh, of that Bible study, I was trying to encourage everybody to go find a church. But I think God was at work here. And he was beginning to see Something in our group where we were in pretty close proximity to one mind. I'm sure we have a lot of work to do. But this is a witness to the community. Be harmonious in mind. Have unity of mind. Number two, he says, as a church, all of you, as God's chosen, as his elect, as his loved ones, that he has redeemed through the blood of Christ. Number two, have sympathy for one another. The idea of sympathy here means to share in the pain of others. I don't know about you, but whenever I've gone through a hard time in my life, I always remember those who came alongside me and shared my pain. There's something about that. Whenever someone is grieving for whatever reason, a job, a family member has passed away, they've they've lost whatever dreams they have had, their children aren't living the way they want them to, and they're in pain emotionally and spiritually, there's something about a fellow Christian that comes alongside and puts their arms around them and says, you know what? We're in this together. Amen. Sometimes you don't have to talk about the pain and the suffering. Sometimes all that is required is the sympathy of a of someone who cares. You just have to sit there together and not even really talk, just kind of be there together. That's one of the most healing forms of ministry I've ever experienced. It's a wonderful thing. So the church is to have unity of mind. The church is to have a sense of sympathy with one another, sharing the same feelings, sharing the pain together. And thirdly, all of us are to have brotherly love, have a sense of love as for one another 
as if you are brothers and sisters in the same family. And we are because we've been bought by the same blood of Jesus Christ. Next, he says, to be tender-hearted, to have a tender heart. Literally, this implies here to have a tender heart, to be actually so in tune with one another that you feel each other in the very gut of who you are. Everyone's internal spirit is tender toward each other to the point that you're connected spiritually. And lastly, he says, to have a humble mind. So he wants the church to be harmonious. He wants the church to share in feeling that sympathy. He wants the church to have a sense of brotherly love. He wants the church to be tender toward one another. And finally, all of this culminates in a sense of humility in spirit. A humble mind. I'm humbled enough in my arrogance. God will do that, won't he? (laughs) And when it comes to the church living together, there's no room for arrogance and pride. There must be only humility, placing others before ourselves. Now, I mean, this sounds kind of similar here. When you read verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. We see this in Galatians chapter 5. If you flip over there real quick to Galatians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul speaks about the same thing when it comes to the Christian life. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So if we are united as a congregation in the Spirit, as Peter is writing to a church, to the church, he's saying the the gospel of Jesus Christ will result in this type of behavior, this type of Christian fruit, joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's not that we practice these things in order to be saved. It is that these are the result of salvation in Jesus Christ, being made new men and women in the blood of Jesus Christ. Our minds are renewed. Our lives are changed. It's nothing that we can manufacture. It's what Christ has done in us, right? Now, how does this happen? I mean, be honest with yourselves, right? Is it possible to be this way, to always be generous and kind and gentle and joyful? I don't think it's very, I don't think it's plausible for us to be this way all the time. I disagree with those who say that in the spirit of Jesus Christ, we do no longer sin and we are always joyous no matter what. You know what? Life happens, doesn't it? I stub my toe. I wreck my car. Someone goes to the hospital. I may end up in the hospital. Somebody's dead. I have to go to a funeral. Life happens. And in the midst of all of that, the Christian has something that the non-Christian lacks. It is God's church, God's chosen people, those who are redeemed in the blood of Christ. They are only capable of these types of behaviors and these types of mindsets only because of Jesus Christ. Only because Jesus has saved us through his blood. Only because we are made new in the spirit of Christ is it even possible for us to be of one mind, to be sympathetic, to love one another, to be tender toward one another, and to be humble. It's impossible otherwise. 
And anyone who thinks that you can manufacture these behaviors and then expect everyone else to think you're a Christian, you may get away with it for a little while, but eventually the truth reveals itself. And the truth of the spirit of the human being will be seen in and in the season of persecution and suffering, just like these churches are facing that Peter's writing to. Whenever life gets difficult, that's when we see the true nature of who we are. And so when things are going bad, we have to look at ourselves and, and be honest with ourselves and then be honest with each other. You know what? I see that your life is going difficult right now, but here's what I see coming out of you. Does it match up with this list? Is the spirit of Christ coming out of us even in the midst of suffering and persecution? It's a good sign. It's not that we're trying. First Peter is not a self-help book. It is a letter written to the church, encouraging the church that you do have a testimony that the world needs to see. This is not a, a book that we're supposed to look at as if we are checking off our behavior list. The opposite here in verse 9 is, as God's elect, as God's people, verse 9, Peter says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling or for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Do not repay evil for evil. I don't know about you, but when that uh, that mad driver cuts me off on the interstate, I want to just plow right into his backside, don't you? Road rage. Amen. Just because somebody who doesn't know how to drive cuts you off doesn't mean that you then behave like him and not learn how to drive either. Do not repay evil for evil. Or reviling for reviling. Now, what does it mean to revile? It really means to insult. Right? We are actually in a, we're in an age of sarcasm like I have never seen before in my life. Especially with young people. It bothers me when I see teenagers and young children actually enjoying insulting one another as a joke. Now, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a place for playful laughter, right? Right? There's a place for that. Guys, we know what it means, right? It's almost, with men, it's almost like a rite of passage to see how tough you are to see if you can stand up to the insults. Right, guys? We realize real quickly that doesn't work with our wives, though. We know. Right, ladies? That don't work. But now, boys and, and men will get together and insult one another from time to time. But, I mean, Peter here in verse 9, I think there's some important things here, right? Do not repay reviling for reviling, or do not repay insult for insult. When we are around non-Christians and, and, and the, the atmosphere of the room gets to be this joking atmosphere where we insult one another, does the Christian join in? I'm, I would argue try to stay out of it as best you can without looking too holy and arrogant. Now, we are to be holy, but we're not to be arrogant in that holiness. Peter says here in verse 9, do not repay reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, what? Bless. What does it mean to bless? It means to speak well of somebody, to praise them. When someone is insulting you, how would they respond when instead of insulting them back, we bless them and we praise them? Jesus did that, didn't he? He put his enemies in their place. Whenever they would insult him and charge him, he would always bless them. And then they didn't know what to say. <laughs> we can do the same. And Peter says here in verse 9, all of these things, instead of 
being sucked into the attitude of evil and the attitude of insulting, praise them. Because we are, for this you were called. We are called to bless people. We are called to praise them. We are called to speak well of them so that, so that we may obtain a blessing as well. Now before we misinterpret verse 9 as the name it and claim it word of truth gospel, we do not bless people with the expectation that we're going to get a return on our investment. We bless people, number one, because we are commanded by the gospel to do so. Period. Whether we receive a blessing or not, we are to bless others. Amen? Because what is the true blessing? A true blessing is whenever you do something kind towards someone and you don't expect a reward. And guess what? You may not receive one and somebody may not know that you were ever kind, but you bless anyway. Isn't that one of the greatest feelings to bless somebody in secret and they don't even know that you did it? For to this you were called, Peter says. You are called as a church. You are called as God's people. You are called as Christians to bless because that's the witness that the world needs. Verses 10 through 12. He continues to encourage the church. Here's what this looks like. Whenever we are harmonious in the church, when we are harmonious together, it, re- it results in a blessing to the world. Whenever we are in harmony as a church body, whenever the Christians get together and they are of one mind and they're loving toward one another and they're tender-hearted and humble toward one another and they don't do evil toward each other and they don't insult each other. That itself is a blessing to the world. And here's what this looks like in verse 10. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So this this idea in verse 8 and 9 that Peter's encouraging the church with, he is he doesn't make up this idea. It comes from the word of God itself, right? What In verses 10 through 12, Peter is actually quoting several proverbs, but more importantly, but I guess more uh, centralized, it comes from Psalm 34. Turn over to Psalm 34. We read part of Psalm 34 today as, as the reading of scripture. We won't read all of Psalm 34, but I encourage you. This is a beautiful psalm of encouragement. Beginning in verse 8 of Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I always argue that anyone who has actually tasted this goodness, anyone who has tasted the sweetness and the beauty of the Lord, knows what how good God is. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, verse 9, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. See, this is encouragement to God's people. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. If we are in and an environment of suffering and persecution as the early church is that Peter's writing to. If we seek the Lord, even in the midst of that suffering, we lack nothing. We have everything we need. 
Because if we've tasted God's goodness, is there anything more good that we can ever obtain? God is the sweetest that there can be. He is the most high good that is possible. The very idea of God is greater than any idea that you can ponder. There's nothing else needed. Verse 11 of Psalm 34. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Here's what fearing God looks like. And this is what Peter now borrows for his letter to the church. Verse 12. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Can we say an amen about the tongue? Doesn't James tell us this in James chapter 3 about the, the dangers of the tongue? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. If we pursue the goodness of God, if we pursue peace, we're going to avoid the stressful people. We're going to avoid the high-strung people. We're going to avoid getting sucked into the gossip of work. What does gossip in the workplace do? It does nothing but stir up trouble. As Christians, do we enjoy that? Do we participate in that? According to God's word, we turn away from that. We watch our tongue. Verse 15 of Psalm 34. See, the, the, these first few verses we've read talks about the expectation of our behavior. But now in verse 15, we now look at what God does. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Man, wouldn't verse 15 of Psalm 34 be the the rallying cry for people who are in the middle of suffering. When we are crying out to the Lord in the midst of our suffering and our sorrows, when we cry out to the Lord in the midst of our, our heartache, wouldn't it be pleasing to know that God is looking toward us with pleasure? Wouldn't that give you support and encouragement? Verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed spirit. See, that this theme here in Psalm 34 is what Peter is reminding the church in his letter. Just as the people of God who were fleeing Pharaoh and fleeing the slavery of Egypt, as they were crying out to the Lord in the wilderness, It is God's favor that came upon them because he loved them as his people. And he sees them in the wilderness and he sees them in their struggles. And he still sees them with a sense of compassion and love as the father does. So the encouragement in Peter's letter is that in the midst of the sorrow that you have, church, in the midst of being surrounded by pagans who who hate you, Know that in the midst of this trouble, it is God who sees you. It is God who hears your cry. Doesn't that sound wonderful? If we can just be reminded of that in the midst of the sorrow, instead of being sucked into the evil and the stress. Back here in 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 12, we're going to close with this idea. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. We're reminded here, for the eyes of the Lord are on who? The eyes of the Lord are only upon those who are righteous. God will always look after 
his children. He will always look after those who are righteous. And how is it that anyone is righteous in God's eyes? It is only through the blood of Christ. We are not righteous in our own efforts. If we are bought by the blood of Christ, God has favor upon us. He sees us with those gentle, compassionate eyes. But here is in contrast. Well, actually, and let's look in verse 12 again. Not only does God see us, he also hears our prayer. Verse 12. These are prayers of petition, right? We have different kinds of prayer. We have, we have prayers of praise. We have prayers of crying out in grief and sorrow. But most, oftentimes, we are petitioning the throne of heaven when we pray. Doesn't it bring us encouragement whenever we know that God is listening to our petition? <laughs> but in contrast in verse 12, we see how God fa- uh, treats those who are not righteous. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He, Peter here at the end of verse 12 is actually borrowing from the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 1. If God's eyes in his favor are upon his righteous chosen elect, his church, those who are loved and saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. In contrast, it is the face of the Lord who turns away from those who do evil. See, verse 12 here is a great answer to those who think that God loves everybody even though they are in their sin. Now, does God love all of his creation? Absolutely. Does God desire that all would be saved in the blood of Christ? Absolutely. That's a biblical principle. But it's also very biblical that God really makes clear distinction between those who are righteous and those who do evil. We can't avoid that truth in the word. What is it that that God says in the book of Malachi? It is Jacob that I have loved, but it is Esau that I have hated. God has those he favors and God has those he does not. Where do we stand before that truth? Are we in God's eyes as his righteous ones in the blood of Christ? Or are we those who choose to do evil and God turns his face from us? I think what Peter is trying to get the church to see here is that in the midst of living amongst pagans, in the midst of living in exile, do not forget that the Lord has not forgotten you. In the midst of your living as his church in, in a foreign land, in a, in a new city, in a new place of the Roman Empire where you must start your life all over again, it is God who sees you because he bought you with the price of his son. But in the midst of that, know that as God sees his loved ones, his church, with favor, God will turn his face away from those who do evil against his church. See, folks, we we don't need to stand up and fight for our rights as Christians. God's going to do that. Amen? What we are called to in this letter from the Apostle Peter is that in the midst of this environment that we find ourselves in where the world is hostile to the gospel, and folks, that's nothing new. The world has always been hostile to the gospel. Okay? That's nothing new. That's That's part of the plan here. Because those who live in evil and those who do evil will reject and fight against the goodness of the Lord. That's kind of the definition of evil. So what else do we expect? What I think we can glean from this text is this. Is that we have we have a responsibility that God has called us to as Christians. To live in harmony together. 
to live in peace together. To live in sympathy toward one another in the midst of our pain and sorrow. Not just for our benefit, but primarily for the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is something about living in our own little pity parties that we often forget the bigger picture at play here. And listen, suffering is real. Misery is hurtful. But in the midst of that, can we be reminded by encouraging one another? Can we be reminded through God's word that it is the glory of God at stake? The glory of the gospel is more important than our misery and our pity party. We struggle through it. But in the end, if we support one another and we actually listen to the words of the Lord, God will receive glory. He will be praised. And there will be a testimony on the other side of whatever we're going through that God gets the glory. And we can say, you know what? I had no idea what was going to happen. I was angry. I was mad. I was sorrowful. But in the end, we see what God's plan was all along. And there's a privilege to be chosen by God to actually be that witness. We may look at God and say, dear God, I don't like this. Has anyone ever had that honest conversation with the Lord? I don't like this. But God hasn't forgotten us. And in the end, he receives the glory. Amen. Let me close this in prayer. Father God, whenever we as the church actually follow the ways of the gospel as you intend, there is a beautiful thing that results. And I pray, God, that you would encourage us always in your word and encourage us in our time together in this love of bond, of fellowship and harmony, that, dear God, you are receiving glory in how we live, how we treat one another, how we treat those who are outside of the church, even in the midst of their anger against us. That, Father God, shows how wonderful you are. So I pray, God, that you would encourage us always in the midst of evil and insult and give us the strength God needed to stand firm in peace and love even in the midst of those hard times. This is where, Father, we depend on you the most. And it is where our faith will reveal itself for what it is. Do we truly trust you or do we not? Lord, we thank you for your word. And God, I thank you for this group of Christians who gather together. They are a blessing to me. And I pray, God, that you would continue to watch over us. In Jesus' name, amen.